This September, Salon London took to the countryside for festival number six, set in the breathtaking village of Port Merion. We were asked to curate around the theme of identity, and in typical Salon style, we showcased experts from across all disciplines, art, science and psychology. For our Saturday, we had psychologist Philippa Perry, biologist Grace Dugdale and house DJ Greg Wilson. First on the Salon stage was the inimitable Philippa Perry, who tried to work out exactly what makes us tick. Identity um, is a construct. Um, identity is an abstract noun, so it isn't anything you can actually get hold of in your hand or anything. It's a construct. If you think of identity as an onion, we've got different layers of identity. I mean, we've got our ethnicity, we've got nationality, we've got education, we've got all the sum of our experiences. It's, it's like an onion, because we're not just who we are in isolation, we are who we are in relationship with each other and with our tribe and with our country and with our culture. Now, if we were to strip all those layers away, what would we be left with? I mean, what is the essence of you? What is your actual identity? Um, in psychotherapy, we have this um, uh, construct, everything's made out of constructs, um, called Johari Windows. Anybody familiar with it? Hello, good. Do you want to explain what it is? No, okay. Well, I want you all to imagine a 1960s picture window like that that is divided into four, like that. And in this window, in this bit of it, this is what's known about you that you know, okay? And then in this window, am I getting this right? I'm, I'm relying on you. In this window, it's what you know about you, but other people don't know. Um, in, in, in this window here is what other people know about you, but you don't know about yourself, sort of your blind spot window. And then in the, the last window, we have the unknown unknowns. It's, it's about you, but you don't know about it, and neither do other people. I mean, in there, you could have your, say, day of death. None of us know the, the day we're going to die, and so that would be in the unknown unknowns. But that's a very obvious example. There are other things that are in the unknown unknowns, but the Johari window makes up a picture of you because it's things you know about yourself and things that other people know about you, and it, and it does sort of touch on that we are who we are because we are in relationship with other people. I think other people are a major part of our identity. We can never actually control how other people see us. I mean, I might hire a PR agent to say nice things about me in newspapers, but basically, if you see me as a wanker, that's how you're going to see me. I can't really control that much as I might want to. We can't control our identity. We think we can. We think we're the masters of our identity, but in fact, we're not. Um, it's in the hands of newspaper reporters, our friends, the rest of the group. And we even flex our identity. It's never fixed. 
So I'd like to sum up, really, by saying that identity is a construct. Identity is fluid because we change. And there's always the own unknown part of you that is part of you that cannot be described. And I think that's special. And the other thing is that when we do peel off the layers of the onion of culture and experience and get to that special part, what all humans have, whether it's been squashed or encouraged, is an innate ability to reach out and an innate ability to be reached because humans are social animals. Oh, you can clap. Thank you. Molecular biologist Grace Dugdale took a scientific look at sex as she explored how our genetic makeup influenced our reproductive behaviour. Both men and women want to pass on their genes, but it's achieved very differently for men and women. That's, it's, uh, so for women, every t- if she wants to pass on her genes, every time she has sex, she may have a baby, she may get pregnant. Um, for men, that's different. It's, he passes on his genes by spreading his seeds as far as wide as possible. Um, he is, the only limit to his genetic heritage is the number of partners that he can get to sleep with him. So, it's, uh, and so those are differences. And so we can see the difference in our bodies in terms of everything works to maximize the reproduction in both sexes. And this is really important in terms of our sexual identity because it drives why, why we behave the way we do. And understanding it is really important because we, if we understand ourselves better, we can have better relationships um, and better sex. And being able to differentiate between the biological difference and the social condition that gets layered onto that is also really important. So everything that happens in our bodies serves to reinforce those reproductive drivers. So for women, it makes sense for her to bond with a sexual partner. Every time she has sex, she may get pregnant. So if you get pregnant, you are out of action for for a year at least. So you go through pregnancy, which is nine months breastfeeding and then you have a small child to, to it and our, our bodies you know aren't haven't evolved with um you know nursery schools in mind you know you are stuck with a small child so there's a huge amount invested in sex for a woman and much less so for men so a woman's body is you know having multiple partners for instance doesn't help her reproduction you know she only can have one baby at a time so everything in the in the body reinforces that and it's the same for men everything in a male body reinforces his in order to maximize his reproduction so that's to drive him to have multiple sexual partners so he spreads his genes as far and wide as possible that's that's kind of how it works so we see these differences in the brain in the triggers for arousal uh in the hormones that we produce, these form, if you like, our sexual, this is the, the baseline for our sexual identity. Um, if, we, if we look at identity, we, we look at either group identity or an individual identity. So it's a set of characteristics that, that make us who we are. So we can see our group identity as perhaps belonging to the, to the biological sex, um, which pretend, sometimes is distinct from gender. So in the female brain, as I say, the different triggers for arousal, but I think one of the perhaps most fundamental things is every time a woman has sex, she produces the hormone oxytocin. Um, and that's a bonding hormone. That's a very strong, that's, it's known as the love hormone or the cuddle hormone. And so every time she has sex, it's the same hormone that's produced during childbirth, during breastfeeding, that helps a mother bond with the infant. And it's also produced during sex. And that is because if you have sex with a man, he may get pregnant and it's actually worth 
you know, sticking around this guy because he may be the father of your child. So it's worth being very discerning, especially when you're at your most fertile. So this is where sexual peak comes into it. The timing of sexual peak in men and women is different. So um, women, it's older. So she's less, her sort, of, her sort of less sexual stage when she's younger, when she's at her most fertile, because that's when you want to be your most discerning. You get less discerning as you get older. At, as you're, as you're running out of time, it's either you want to have a lot of sex with your partner to have a baby or you just want to find anybody who will father your child is kind of how it works. Um, for men, it's the opposite. So men, their timing of their sexual peak is earlier and that serves to maximize his spreading his seed. He wants to have multiple partners. And there's lots of different studies that show this, that you know, uh, every time a man sees a new face, that face is more attractive. If he sees a photograph of an attractive female for the second time, there's less attraction. So there's, in the brain, there's lots of things going on that serve to maximize this sort of reproductive, reproductive sort of uh, heritage, if you like. Men also produce, well, it's a related hormone, vasopressin, which produces a small bonding effect, but it's, it's dampened by the presence of other male hormones like testosterone where, and reinforced by female um, hormones like estrogens. So you can sort of see it's like the difference between pritstick and superglue. So women tend to sort of bond a little bit, a little bit more. It also explains why women, um, you know, again, studies show this. This is a myth that women can feel rubbish, for instance, after one night stands. Um, and it's because of this, like, massive investment in sex, you know, and you want this person. You have selected this person, potentially, as a father for your child. You know, our bodies haven't evolved to recognize, you know, the effects of contraception, you know, you may get pregnant, and so therefore you want the guy to call. Um, and, and the way this works for men is that, you know, if you sleep with a man too quickly, what happens is that effectively you're signaling that your genes aren't very valuable. And so men tend to subconsciously, obviously, classify women as either a sperm receptacle or as a potential mate, because during his, his most sexually, his sexual peak period, he wants multiple sexual partners. His sexual peak declines as he gets older, and we're one of the few animal species that form pair bonds. So he does want to have a mate, and he does want to invest in child rearing at some point, but he also wants to, there's this tension, if you like, where he wants to sort of maximize his reproductive um, heritage. And so this doesn't make life particularly fair, you know? Um, but it's the reality. And I think that often what happens is that we get these lots of misconceptions in society that, you know, women should be, you know, just behaves just the same way as men, be very sort of liberal, um, and that's fine. Or we get a very sort of puritanical kind of women should be pure, you know, and, and that if they have sort of lots of sex, they're, they're slags. And it's kind of, that's what I call the biological basis of patriarchy. And it's kind of a way of exerting control over human, uh, female sexuality. Um, but it's important to recognize the reality behind that. And it's no good, you know, you're not striking a blow for sort of, you know, women's liberation to have sex if it's making you feel bad. And I think it's, understanding all of this is important. So it's understanding, that's the sort of group identity, if you like. That's sort of what forms the, the, the group components. And, and these things, understanding these things, and within that there's individual variation, which I'll talk about in a minute. But if we understand these things, we can fight misconceptions in society um, that are related to, to our gender and what's important. And the reason that's important is that, you know, as I mentioned, we get this thing potentially that... that, that people argue that women are less sexual, and that isn't the case. Female sexuality just operates in a different way. 
or that men are less emotional because they're able to have one-night stands and get less attached. But that's just to do with oxytocin and hormones. It's not really to do with that. And actually, research shows that as children, boys and girls are just as emotional as each other. And ad- through adolescence, we, we condition that out of boys. And there are, there are three factors for, for our sort of biological, sort of our sort of sexual behavior, three factors driving it. So there's our biology, and these all f- feed into our identity because there are behavioral characteristics as well as f- physical characteristics. So there's our biology and social conditioning and how we are individually in terms of our psyche and emotions. Those are the three things that form our sexual behavior. So in terms of social conditioning, um, you know, our sexual identity and behavior is shaped during adolescence. So we get our, our, our sort of sexual primitive urges are driven in the amygdala in the brain. So it's at the center of the brain. And it's, it's kind of like our reptilian brain. You can see the brain has evolved um, through the most primitive parts in the center. And it's almost like the rings on a tree. You can see the layers of evolution that have developed during the outer sort of reasons. So you get very primitive drivers. So some people call it, call it the four Fs. You get fight, flight, food, and <laughs> and so, so it's to do with sex and it's those very sort of primitive urges and so during sort of very early childhood that's you know toddlers you can see it's the, going through the terrible twos and so on that is what is driving the show during very early childhood it's just taking care of their individual needs like I want chocolate now I want this I want that is the amygdala sort of driving things basically and as we go through adolescence we have intense development of the frontal cortex which is cognition and reasoning and so on and that's the kind of the, the voice of reason to those primitive urges. And so, again, this impacts our behavior and our, our, our sexual identity because how developed this is during adolescence is how much you balancing you get of those primitive urges, if you like. So our behavior shapes the brain during adolescence. So those things are really, really important. You get synaptic pruning. Um, during adolescence through into our 20s, and that is where you get connections in the brain falling away that aren't used. And then you also get new synapses forming, so it's kind of pathways in the brain. You get cells forming, um, junctions which form synapses, um, and that form your sort of thought paths and neural pathways, if you like. And And those are formed in the frontal cortex during adolescence based on our experiences. So our sexual behavior then, what we do, and and what behaviors are challenged and encouraged, that literally shapes our brain and our identity and our behavior. So that's a really, really critical time. So that's where social conditioning comes in, because the society around us shapes the way our families are, you know, and, and what experiences we have, and that shapes the behavior. So that's an opportunity you know, the, sort of the important thing, so what I was talking about before, that um, adolescents and boys and conditioning them not to show their emotions, that's when a lot of that stuff happens. Acid House pioneer Greg Wilson was the final speaker to take to our salon stage. He talked to us about the second summer of love and its impact on the cultural identity of British music. Anyway, thanks for all coming. I've come to speak about the second summer of love, which was basically... Strangely, over two summers, 1988 and 1989, it, it was to do with the Acid House revolution that happened initially in the UK. And um, for a second summer of love, there has to be obviously a first summer of love. First summer of love was 1967. Uh, basically, it sprung out of what was happening in San Francisco. 
uh, Scott McKenzie, San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair, was a release. Um, on the surface, and when I was a kid growing up, hearing that record, I mean, it was a massive tune. I think it sold 10 million around the world or something. It took those vibes worldwide. And it, it was always a distinctive record. Uh, I, I didn't quite understand the implications of it, what it was about. But the writer of the song was John Phillips of a band called The Mamas and the Poppers. What happened in January of 1967 within the hippie community that had, had built around Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco, they had like this idyllic life that, that, that they loved. It was all peace, love. LSD was about at the time, and they had this community that was growing, an alternative community, but they were aware that that summer, that that area was going to be invaded from all parts of America, and indeed probably people coming from different parts of, of, of Europe and stuff, to find out what was happening. So the song was in effect to say, if you come in to San Francisco, come in peace, wear flowers in your hair, you know, there's going to be a loving, it's talking about what's actually going to happen. And sure enough, what did happen is in the summer of 1967, just a deluge of people came in. Um, you know, people talk about 1967 as, as the summer of love, but by the end of that summer, the original people in Haight-Ashbury actually did an event called the Death of Hippie. They said it was all over. Now, let's move on to the second summer of love, which has a lot of parallels. In 1960, um, sorry, 1987, the summer of 1987, a group of DJs from London went to Ibiza. They were Danny Ramplin, Paul Oakenfold, uh, Johnny Walker, and Nicky Holloway. They went for a holiday. It was Paul Oakenfold's birthday. There was another DJ over there called Trevor Fung and his cousin, a guy called Ian St. Paul. And basically, they took them to a club called Amnesia, where there was a DJ, an Argentinian, who was working out in Ibiza called Alfredo. And he was known for this balearic approach to music, which was really uh, an eclectic playing this and that all together. So there was bits of like house music, there were bits of like kind of pop music, rock, everything was played together. The, the thing that happened to that, that night was, was those four DJs took ecstasy for the first time, which Trevor Fung had introduced them to. I had a revelation, just had, had this most amazing time and, and thought... Our, our Balearic kind of wonderland, we're going to kind of try and translate to, to, to Britain, which is exactly what they did. I mean, they, they came back from that trip and they opened clubs. There was um, Danny Ramplin opened a famous club night called Shoom. Paul Oakenfold had nights like Spectrum and Future. Uh, Nicky Holloway had the trip. And, and they tried to take this ethos, this Balearic ethos that they caught out and of course, on the back of that, coming over with it, was the drug ecstasy, MDMA. In London, house was only being played really, you know, like on the gay scene or, or by DJs that were kind of affiliated to the gay scene, whereas it was very much from the, blacks, the black scene in Manchester where, where the, the evolution had occurred. And it all fuses in 1988. There's a kind of mythology from a Manchester side that Bez from the Happy Mondays did a gig in London and came back that night with 50 ecstasy tablets, distributed them in the club on a Wednesday night. They had a night called Hot, and that was the start of ecstasy coming, coming into Manchester. Now, by the summer, it, it had all kind of exploded. 
And a lot of the symbolism was taken from the 60s, the peace and love ethos of the 60s. For me, uh, a lot of the reasons why the, the whole kind of acid house era, it didn't hit deeper and more politically and everything. It was a very hedonistic scene was because of the borrowed symbolism in many ways. It was kind of reverting back. By 89, as I say, things had reached a real peak um, that, that it had brought in people not just from cities like London and Manchester, Sheffield, Nottingham. These places were kind of were connected to dance culture very deeply. It had gone right throughout the whole country. People were absolutely enamoured with this new music. In the UK, house became a, a huge commercial force. Club culture absolutely changed completely. It went from, from dance music being, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it was a completely underground thing, but there was certainly major underground part of it. It obviously sleep, seeped into mainstream, the bigger tunes, but there was things like the jazz funk scene, electro funk, rare groove in London, all these things were going on that were specialist music scene based on dance music. Now this started to shift into the mainstream and this whole kind of um, you know, acid house rave explosion hit full gear and we have the club culture. I mean, now as a DJ, I travel the world and play. That wouldn't have happened back when I stopped DJing in 84. The furthest I, I got, I think, was, was Birmingham or Nottingham. That was exotic, you know, like to get up the M6. But now it's a worldwide... And, and, and it's because of, of the fact that these four guys went to Ibiza and had this experience. I had a vision to, to bring it back. And at the same time, you had people like Mike Pickering, Tony Wilson, Rob Gresson, who was New Order's manager at the Hacienda, who, because of their associations with New York, with New Order going over and touring a certain ratio, Quando Quango, they wanted to bring a bit of New York kind of dance culture to Manchester. And so it, it's these visionary people that enabled this situation to happen.